Well, if you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and uh, if you do not have one with you, uh, there should be a Bible in the seat in front of you, uh, there at the bottom. And, uh, and if you don't have one at home, uh, we would love for you to take that Bible home as a gift. Uh, we believe it's the Word of God and that God uh, has written that for our instruction, for our good. And so we invite you to take that and to read it uh, on your own. And uh, we would love for you to have um, one of those uh, with you. Um, it, uh, it's June 28th, isn't it? And... Uh, which is, which, is, uh, which is an interesting day uh, for me, for sure. Um, as you know, this, this uh, month, I was asked by the elders to preach uh, these four Sundays uh, to lay out um, some of the desires that God's placed on my own heart that are built around our own mission as a church, our own mission statement. And uh, I'm going to uh, actually do the last one um, right now. But uh, tonight, uh, you're going to vote. And uh, if you come back, you're going to vote. And Uh, And I uh, invite you and ask you um, in sincerity to do so according to your conscience. Um, Several months ago, after being told uh, by the search team that somebody in our church family had recommended my name to be considered, um, and uh, I... um, I started praying a prayer, a threefold prayer. It's one that really I had been praying even prior to that, but it became very real when I received that phone call. Uh, And the things that I've been praying are this. Number one is that God's will would be done, not only in my life, but for this church body. Second is that God would protect my family. Um, And third, I've been praying is that if, in the foreknowledge of God, that he would know that I would either shame the name of Jesus Christ or injure this body called Providence, that he would supernaturally shut it down. And one of the ways he can do that is if you vote no, right? And so I earnestly and honestly tell you and the Lord that I trust him with all of my heart and life and family, and I trust his leadership in your life. And so I would invite you to come tonight and to vote according to your conscience. Our mission statement says that we exist to glorify God by introducing all peoples to Jesus Christ, growing them to love and worship Him. Over the last month, I've looked at three different sermons on some of these highlighted words, but the one that I've not touched, and I'm going to do that now, is how do we introduce all peoples to Jesus Christ? Um, and to do that, we're going to use Second Corinthians chapter 5. So I want to ask uh, you to join me in prayer, and uh, I just... Uh, I feel a lot better than I did the last hour, to be totally honest with you. But I asked them to pray, and I would ask you to pray also. There's a lot of really big things colliding in one day uh, that, uh, with David and uh, with our culture and tonight and a sermon. And so, and so I feel just a little bit heavier than normal. And so you can just be praying for me, okay? And so if you would, let's bow. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are uh, grateful for your love for us and grateful that you have given us your word. And as we read this chapter, I pray that you, by your Spirit, would help our hearts to believe it is true, that you would help us to understand it, and that you would help us to apply it to our life in a way that would bring you glory and would bring us good and good to people who are around us. I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you would burn this, etch this deep into our heart. I pray, would you speak through weakness and bring glory to Jesus alone, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, 
Chapter 5, starting in verse 1, we're going to read the whole chapter. It says, For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. For we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience." We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and rose again. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, when you read a chapter all by itself, and we've not built up to it by studying a series through 2 Corinthians, and you don't know how we landed here in chapter 5, you do know the word... He begins with is four. If you know what four means, it means you better know what's in chapter one through four in order to understand what's in chapter five. And so right now, Second Corinthians is sort of like a sail that's not anchored. And so in your minds, it's possible, if you don't know what this book says, is that, is that this sail may be flapping around aimlessly in your mind. So what I want to do right now is actually back up just a little bit. And I want to anchor this sail to some truths that precede it so that that sail can catch wind and propel us forward in knowing how to introduce people to Jesus Christ. And so, I like to get a good running start. So we're going to back up to chapter 3, okay? And so look at chapter 3, verse 18. 
In verse 18, this is what he says. He says, and we all, and he's speaking here of the church to Christians. Paul has planted, he has gone into Corinth. He shared the gospel. Many believed they formed a church and now he's writing back to them in order to instruct them. And he says to the Christians, he says, and we all with unveiled face beholding or looking upon the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So what he does here is he introduces a population of people who are on the earth. And this population of people are the people he considers Christians. And they're the people that not because of their power, but it says because of the Spirit of God, has literally unveiled their eyes to be able to see the greatness of Jesus Christ and his ability to forgive sin. That there's a lot of people who look on Christ and they see him as inconsequential or even as boring. Yet these people have seen the glory of God and they're being transformed into his likeness from one degree to the next. So we learn several things here. Number one is it's all dependent upon the Holy Spirit. We also learn this, is that if you want to grow in the Lord, the first quest you have is not to grow in the Lord, it's to see God. Because we become like who we admire. You want to become like Jesus, you have to admire Jesus. To admire Jesus, you have to see Jesus. And so he introduces this population and he says, there's people like me in church, you're them, who God has literally unveiled our eyes to be able to see the greatness of Jesus. But then he gets into chapter 4, and in chapter 4, he introduces another population of people who are walking on this earth, some of whom may be in this room. And that is people who have yet to trust Jesus Christ. Look what it says in chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. It says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what he's saying here is this, is there's another population of people that were just like all of us at one time. And that is that we had a veil, we had a blindfold wrapped around our eyes, that the God of this age, what he's speaking here, is Satan, our enemy, our adversary. And what he's done is he has tied a blindfold around people's eyes. And he, by his own hand, is holding that blindfold tight. So as a church, you and I don't have power to loosen the grip of Satan. But he does, and that's why he says the first task in evangelism is prayer. To say, God, we don't have the power to do this, but you do. Would you, by your spirit, unveil, take down the veil in people's eyes so they can see the greatness of Jesus? And so you have these two populations of people, and what happens is that there's misunderstanding among the two. You see, people who look at Jesus as inconsequential because they can't see his greatness, they're all bewildered by the people who think that he's really, really cool and amazing. And they can't imagine why anybody would stake their life and and say that this person is my cornerstone. When they look at Jesus and they think that he's inconsequential. And so what happens is there's tension that takes place in the earth. And Paul is under persecution from the very tension that he's describing. And so look at Chapter 4, verse 7, he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, 
but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. And then he says, why? He goes, because we're carrying in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested through us. Then you skip down to verse 16 of chapter 4, and he says this. So we're not going to lose heart. Verse 17 is this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond, beyond all comparison. And so with this understanding in mind that there's these populations and they're viewing Jesus totally differently. And he wants to call this population over here that's seen the greatness of Jesus. And he's entrusting them with the responsibility of introducing all peoples to Jesus Christ. And he's going to give us just a few practical instructions, really speaking of God's desires for us as a people. How do we live our lives so that you and I can introduce people to Jesus and help them to see that he is consequential, that he is the king and he's the Lord of heaven and earth? So four of them. Number one is this, is that God desires that we live on earth with our hope in heaven. God desires that we live on this earth, that your feet literally walk around this dirt on this earth, and yet your hope and your heart is anchored to heaven. He says these words, right? If this tent is destroyed. (laughs) Now, everyone here who's over 30 years old can appreciate the usage of the word tent to describe our body (laughs) and the frailty that we feel in the face of brokenness. You know, I mean, it's, you know, he talks a lot about groaning. You know, it's interesting, you know, I've started to groan when I sit down and groan when I stand up and, you know, I mean, like, and, and then I watch Fox News and I groan and I, and I watch, I'm like, oh, you know, I just like, there's this weight, there's this heaviness that's around. And, 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 he doesn't say that our life here is, 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 a, is a mansion or a fortified brick building. No, he describes it to a tent. The wind blows and it moves. We're frail. And he says, okay, so in this tent, here's the good news. We have a building from God. And that building is not made with human hands, though it's made by God, and it's eternal in the heavens. It's not shaken. It's prepared for us. It's waiting for us to actually go and inhabit it. But right now, we have to live here on the earth. And so like a combat soldier that is dreaming about his reunion or her with his or her family and kids, and maybe even keeping a picture in, 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 in a pocket near his chest or her chest, thinking, dreaming about going home and being reunited. Well, this is the picture that Paul gives of his relationship with God and how he's walking on the earth. He's down here in this combat field, and yet his heart is ready for his reunion. He says that in this tent, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. You know, all of us groan. We do. We wonder why, like, you know, like if you get broken up with, or if, or if you watch Fox News or CNN, and you, and you see the devastation, or you look at the scale, or, or there's a lot of things that cause us to go, oh, you know, we groan. We just, we, throughout life, you know, God, God tells us that when sin came into the world, that he cursed this earth with thorns and thistles. And so you and I, we're forced to walk our entire existence on this earth under a canopy of thorns and thistles, brokenness. That's why relationships are always filled with strife. We groan at our relationships. Ugh, why does he do that? You know, why does she do that? Why are my kids doing that? Why are my parents doing that? We groan. And there's a lot of people, what they do is they assume that their groaning is an invitation to distraction. And you need to understand something, and that's that God never intended for the groaning that we feel 
when confronted with brokenness, to be mistaken for an invitation to pursue numbing or defiling distractions. Have you ever noticed when you think you need just rest? I, I just want to veg. I'm going to watch three football games back to back to back. Have you ever noticed that you're more exhausted after the games than before? Why? It's because your soul wasn't meant for that. No, God has planted these feelings inside of our gut to remind us to look up that this is not our home. See, he calls us in verse 20 ambassadors. And ambassadors are only as effective as their loyalty to the nation or to the king that they represent. Ephesians 3.20 says our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see what that says? That our loyalty is not here on this earth. Our loyalty is to our king. And if we want to represent him well on the earth, then our heart has to be there and not here. You see, our culture urges us every day to live with only today in mind. And the Bible urges us that the wisest among us will live with the end in mind. And this is why verse 10 finds itself in this chapter. Paul is confronted with this reality of where his heart is and where other people's heart, and he just wants to remind us of this reality. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You can put anything on your buffet tray, but there is a cash register at the end of the line. That's what he's saying. And the wisest people recognize what's coming and live preparing for that. You see, you and I will not invest in what matters when we... In, let me start over. You and I are not going to invest our days on this earth in what will matter to you when you stand before God until you and I see that our days on this earth are numbered. And the reason is because it's our nature, our fundamental human nature is to be wasteful when we perceive excess. Ever been to Golden Corral? You see, there's a whole lot of people in this world that would never throw anything away from their plate. They would treasure it and they would eat every part of it. But perceiving excess, we're very wasteful. We go in thinking, this is how full I want to be. And if we try something, we go, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to waste my stomach space on that. So I'm just going to push that to the middle of the table. Someone's going to come and take that away and let me go start fresh. A lot of people do the same thing with their days. We perceive our days as unlimited. That we can invest our time and our life in things that just don't matter. That we can live on earth with our heart on earth and it's not going to make any difference whatsoever. This is why Moses wrote in Psalm 90, verse 12, he says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. He's saying, God, help us to leverage our days. Help us to see that our days are limited, to, to, to literally redeem our day of something of equal or greater value than the limited amount of time that's going to be taken from me to live out this day. 
And so if we're going to be introducing people to Jesus Christ, one of the first things he says to us is this. You've got to care more about that home than this home. <laughs> you have to be more loyal to that home and that kingdom and that king than this home here on the earth. The second thing he tells us is that God desires that we live for the glory of Jesus. God would desire that we would live our days on this earth, knowing that they're limited, for the glory of Jesus Christ. He says that we make it our aim to please him. Verse 9, he says, whether we're here or there, it doesn't matter. I'm going to live my life for the pleasure and for the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, isn't it interesting, though, that no matter how detailed this universe is that points to him, like a flashing arrow, everything says, look there, look there, look there. I mean, if you think about it, right, we for- everything points to him, and yet we forget him all the time. We go through vast amounts of our day, week, sometimes month, and even years of our life and not give a conscious thought to God. We forget that we're the created ones. We forget that we live in his world. We forget that you and everyone you know will be dead in a hundred years. And nobody's going to care about where you went to school and no one's going to care about what you drove and no one's going to care about your new flooring. No one cares. No one's going to care because they're not even going to know. But what will matter is that we spend our days here on this earth living for the glory and pleasure of Jesus Christ. You see, too often we're like the guy that appears for two seconds as part of the background crowd in a blockbuster movie, but then concludes that the movie is about him. Right? You see, you and I are really important because God loves us and because we were created in the image of God. But you need to know something. This movie is not about me, and it's not about you. So there's no reason to go rent out theaters to invite people to come watch our movie. Because it's not about us. I want you to think about this for a second, right? This is the Bible. Christ pre-existed the earth. Because he's the self-existent, eternal God. Christ created. Christ created us. In his image. Christ loves us. We rebelled. There's our two seconds. Christ responds by leaving heaven. Christ lives on this earth as a righteous man. Christ dies on a cross. Christ rises from the dead. Christ ascends into heaven. Christ sends his spirit down to people who are believing in him. And Christ is coming back again. How could we possibly assume this movie is about us? How do we wake up every day and the first conscious thought we have is me? It's not about us. See, no matter how old you are, I hope that you can see this morning that your life on earth is going to be too brief to make your life the point of your life. Your kingdom's going to pass away when you pass. But we're invited to live for a kingdom that will never pass away. To live for a pleasure of a king who will reign forever. You see, when we discover this and bend our knee in faith to Jesus, we're propelled 
to leverage our days around glorifying this king who died for us and rose from the dead. This is why Paul, Apostle Paul, tells the senior pastor, Timothy, of the church of Ephesus, remember Jesus Christ. What? How do you forget? You preach every week. Remember Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 8. Remember the unforgettable, is what he's saying. This is remarkable. This is like like trying to remind a point guard to dribble. Or an English teacher to add your period. Remember Jesus Christ. Listen, today, this movie is about him. It's all about him. And if we're going to introduce people to Jesus, not only do we have to live here with a heart there, but we have to live here saying, I'm not going to glorify me. I want to glorify him. And that gets us to the third thing, is that God desires that we view people through a different lens. He literally wants us to look at each other and the people of this world through a different lens than we're normally looking through. You see what he says here? Look at verse 16. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. You see, it's our instinct to determine a person's worth and need on the basis of what we see. Okay, so let's just do something that's a little awkward. Okay, instead of looking at me, I want you to look at five people in the room right now. Go ahead. Go ahead and count them. All right. Embrace the awkwardness. Okay. All right. Now, what did you see? You look closely. You saw men and you saw women. You saw young and you saw old. If you look really closely, maybe saw a ring, you see married and you see single. You see black and brown and white. You see, this is the lens by which we normally look through according to the flesh. And what Paul's saying is this. At one time, I even looked at Jesus through the flesh. I looked at him and I thought, eh, not so cool. Definitely not the cornerstone of my life. He goes, but you know what? Once Jesus unveiled, and all of a sudden I'm like, okay, now I see. (laughs) Then he goes, okay, I'm not going to view Jesus anymore according to the flesh. And he's instructing all of us to not view people according to the flesh. You see, God wants us to help us see that every person is several things. Number one is they're valuable as an image bearer of God. He wants us to see that every single person in this room and in the entire world feels uncertain. We all feel frail and vulnerable. And third, he wants us all to see that every single person on the earth has a death sentence over their head. That we're all awaiting death when we will stand in judgment before a God whom every single one of us has offended by our sin. And one day we're going to find out that we're going to stand before God. And you see, everything that we think is so important right now, where people went to school and their gender and their age and all these things, we're going to find this, that for every single person, there's going to be a holy God and a soul, a person. And at that moment in time, it will not matter what their gender is. It will not matter what their skin color is. It will not matter where they went to school or how much money they made or what country they live in. There'll be a person and a God. And this God is a holy God and this person is a sinful person. And until this person is rescued, 
this exchange is going to go really bad. And for this person, eternity is in the balance at that moment. Now, if we can think those thoughts and look through that lens, when we look at people, it'll change the way we treat people. You see, next time you're out to eat, you may go out to lunch today. There may be a waitress. She's not a tip. She's a soul. Next time you're at a ball game and you see thousands of people, you need to think about this. All these people individually are going to stand before God. Next time in your traffic and you're all uptight because all these cars aren't aren't helping you get to to the grand premiere of your movie, right? (laughs) And you're all uptight of where where all these people are. You ought to pause and you ought to pray. Say, you know what? That person right there in that car and that person right there in that car and that person right there in that car, they're all going to stand before God. Maybe instead of complaining, we start praying. God help that person. I don't know where they're at with you, but God help them. We start to view people differently. See, next time you watch news reports of hurricanes in other countries, look at the victims through this lens. They're not just homeless. They're people that need to be reconciled. And the last part says that God has entrusted us with this message of reconciliation. And so the fourth point is very, very simple, and that's that God desires that we go and share the love, I'm I'm sorry, share the gospel in love. God desires that we as a body go and share the gospel in love. You see what it says? It says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Did you know that there's not a religion in the world except for Christianity that features a running, reconciling, pursuing God? Every other God waits in a fence for worshipers to appease by their good works. What the Bible says is that God, for our sake, He made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, this is what the Bible calls the gospel. And it's this picture that we all live in brokenness that God did not intend because of sin. And we all deal with that brokenness by trying to do so many things. Some people try to do good things. Some people try to do bad things. But it's all a response to the brokenness that we all feel. And God recognized that even the people that are trying to do the good things by earning his favor simply cannot climb that ladder. And so instead of asking us to climb the ladder, Jesus came down the ladder. And he lived a righteous life on this earth in obedience to the law. He did miracles to prove his deity. And then this Jesus went to a cross and he died for my sin and yours. He was put into a grave and three days later he rose from the dead. And he extends this this amazing invitation. He says, look, you put all your sin on a platter and I'm going to put my righteousness on a platter 
You trust me and we can switch. And I'll take all your sin and I'll give you all my righteousness so that you can be the righteousness of God. I'll reconcile you to my father. And when you stand before my father, he'll only see my righteousness wrapped around you. This is the good news that we proclaim. It's the gospel. Jesus did this for us. You see, God ran, up, God ran after us when we were running from him. The king that we've been called to represent as his ambassador is a pursuing king. He's a reconciling king. He's a traveling king. The loving king. And if we're going to represent him, then we've got to go. We have to pursue We have to pray. We have to give. We have to commission. Here at the end of the service, we're going to commission Dr. Hawkins and Dr. Brown and the team going to Romania to say, we've got to go. There's people around the world who've never heard. They're waiting for the message of reconciliation. So with this in mind, right, at the end of each of these messages this month, I've sort of stopped teaching and I said, okay, I I need to tell them where we're where I see us as a church in some ways, some practical ways moving forward in this area. So where do I see us moving forward? I think this is really important because you're not just voting on a person tonight. You're not just voting on a family. You're voting on a vision. You need to know I'm going to push in this direction unless God says, no, that's the wrong direction. But right now, I believe this is the direction I'm going to push. And so six things. Number one, I envision every member of Providence being trained and encouraged to share his or her faith. I'm going to expect for you to lead someone to Jesus and me. You see, as as a pastor longing to prepare you as a bride to stand before him. This is what Paul pled in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says that I feel for you this, this, this sincere godly jealousy, a godly jealousy for you, wanting to prepare you as a bride to stand before him. Well, when I look through the scriptures and I see all the calling that God has for us to be sharing our faith, leading people to Christ. It terrifies me to think that parts of our flock could stand before him and have never done that. To have never even told anybody. The fact is, I should clarify, I don't expect you to lead someone to Christ. I expect you to share Christ. If someone comes to Christ, that's a miracle from God. But for all of us to be trained to be telling people about Jesus. And so I envision seeking to, to help our staff and our team to help every member at Providence to be able to lead someone to Christ while they're there on this earth. Second thing is I envision every life class going through a coordinated series this fall on sharing our faith that incorporates a simple gospel sharing tool called Three Circles. I was going to introduce it right now, but, but I can't. Um, the fact is, is even if you vote no tonight, we're still going to do this, okay? <laughs> so... Just a heads up. It just seemed like it fit, though, uh, as, a way, as a way to tell you how, how we're going to train. We're going to spend 14 weeks as a, as a church family in all of our life classes this fall, starting in September, and saying, hey, let's just 
let's just walk through what does it look like to tell people about Jesus? How do we go about doing this? And to seek to equip us to do that. Number three is that I envision many people desiring to bear witness of their conversion in baptism as a result of us sharing our faith with other people. And I also envision having persons who were instrumental in leading those individuals to Christ help in participating in the water. That when we would come to baptism services, that you would see more than, one, more than two people up there. That you would see the privilege that we have, not only to tell people about Christ, but even to participate in their public expression of saying, I'm believing in him. Number four is that believing that God's primary method for evangelism is the local church, I envision us mobilizing our resources and prayers to planting churches in Raleigh, America, and around the world. You've heard about this program here at Providence called E4U, Ephesians 4. And the idea of this is to train lay, lay leaders to take leadership roles within the church. The fact is, is what we haven't told you is that's just track one. There's actually going to be two other tracks for people of just training people. The second is our hope is to actually develop a lay institute of theology to where people who aren't called to full-time vocational ministry but who would still love to take a course in theology can actually come and actually take courses here at Providence and actually just grow in their ability to articulate the gospel and to think through the gospel and to understand scripture. And then the third track would actually be a church planning residency where we would bring an intern or someone on staff with the intent that we would be sending them out within a matter of years to plant a church, whether here in Raleigh or in our country or in the world. Number five is I envision God continuing to flam, to, to, flam, to fan the flame for missions in our body. I envision sending out 10 to 15% of our church family every year on short-term mission trips and hoping that many of those who have been exposed to short-term mission trips would be compelled to go for longer. I envision us growing more strategic and intentional and being frugal with our resources that would allow us to increase our missions giving to 18 to 20% of our operating budget. I'm going to give you one quick, amazing picture of how, how this works. In Nepal, you remember in April, there was a huge earthquake. And as a result of the incredible generosity of this body in giving to the church, as well as unspent money because of frugality in staff in spending operating budget money, we were able to just send $50,000 to longtime ministry partners in the region in order to build 50 homes for believers who have been inviting homeless non-believers into their homes for shelter. Mobilizing the resources that we have in order to help people to know Jesus. And last is just a reiteration of where I started, and that is that I envision as a church family that we glorify Jesus Christ by introducing all people to Jesus Christ and to help one another to grow, to love, and to worship Him. Would God help us in all of these efforts? So let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we are grateful. We're grateful for your love for us. Lord, even as we've talked through the gospel, Lord, there may be some in this room who do not yet bear the righteousness of God. 
and under the weight of sin, there's a lack of peace and a lack of contentment. I pray right now, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself. God, even as we sing another song, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. And for us as a church family, God, would you help us? Would you help us, God, to anchor our heart to heaven, to live for a king that will live forever, to see people differently, and to be active in going and sharing the gospel with people who are as needy as we were. We love you. Thank you for rescuing us. It is amazing. We pray, God, that our worship will be pleasing to you in the way that we live our life. And even now, as we sing a song to you, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.